Well, many people ask a very important question. What is man? What is man? Well, there's all kinds of various ideas on this. Let me give you just a few of them, okay? For example, the idolater and the animist would say this, that man is inferior to birds and animals. That man is inferior to the creeping things, the even the stones and the, the, the sticks and the trees and so forth, right? And so what do they do? Their response to their theology is always going to drive your methodology. So what do they do? They bow down and worship the snake or whatever else is out there, right? The material says this, that man is higher, kind of the exact opposite of the animist or the idolater here. So he's higher than the animal's but he's still only the product of chance. He's the result of this evolutionary natural selection that many believe. And so uh, mo most people would believe these kinds of ideas or something that's equally as foolish. And so we need to then ask the question, is there a way to know the truth? Right? We, we live in this pluralistic society where where everybody wants to you know they, they want to have their own belief and their ideas their their so-called truth is just as relevant and important as anybody else's but there is a truth the bible tells us god's plan for mankind god says as we're going to find out here in this text in hebrews 2 that man was actually created and I, when i say man you understand i mean man and woman, male and female, uh, that, that mankind, in other words, was created to be king of the earth. Uh, only for a little time that he has been made lower than the angels. That's what Hebrews 2 says. Someday Christians are going to sit with Jesus Christ and rule and reign with him in his kingdom. That's what Revelation says. So my friend, I hope that you're going to be there and we can all be there together. And so let's, let's read what Hebrews 2 says. What is mankind, anyway? So we'll, we'll start here in Hebrews 2, verse 5. Hebrews 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man? that you are mindful of Him, or the Son of Man, that you care for Him. You made Him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under His feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, 
I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we're going to talk about mankind's destiny. Mankind has an intended destiny. And Hebrews is reminding us, what is mankind's intended destiny? destiny. Well, we just read about that in verses 5 through 8. See, God never, as it says in verse 5, God never intended to give angels rule over the world to come. Rather, angels, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 14, what's the purpose of angels? They're to minister to believers. They're to minister to those who will be heirs of salvation, it says. And so in the world to come, angels are still servants. Therefore, God's not going to turn over the administration of that world to to the angels. So their present superiority over mankind is a temporary thing. It's interesting, if you look there in Hebrews 2, verse 5, the, the word world means the inhabited world. This is not your, your Greek word, cosmos. Uh, and so the idea here is that there's going to be an inhabited earth to come, in other words. Which is interesting because amillennialist just means no millennium. They believe that there is no future earthly kingdom to come. But this verse plainly says that there is such an earthly uh, an earth to come that is actually inhabited by people. Well, if you read Revelation 20, we would call this the millennial kingdom. However, our present inhabited earth is ruled by angels. In fact, you know the chief fallen angel. goes by many titles, names, one of them being Satan. The one used in our text here is devil. He is described elsewhere in Scripture as the prince of this world. Uh, we also know from Ephesians that this world is under demonic influence. Demons are, of course, fallen angels. God didn't originally create them that, that way. And, and in Ephesians chapter 6, they're called things like the rulers, the powers, uh, forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness. Verses 6 through 8, I hope your Bible distinguishes 6 through 8, because that's actually a quote from Psalm 8. And uh, according to Psalm 8, uh, the human author is David, and 
And here David is, is wondering, what is man that you have done so much for him? Why, God, have you done so much for mankind? Uh, you look at the, the universe. Look at the stars at night. You, you look at God's creatures. And just think about the little dot in this vast universe that we call Earth, our, our home planet. Uh, you can't help but ask the question, what is man? What is man? And that's what David is doing here. He's looking at God's creation, asking this question, what is man? What right do we have to be so much in the mind of God? Why, why does he even think about us at all? And so the psalmist goes on to answer his own question. God made man to be king, to rule and reign with Christ. And so both David and the writer of Hebrews may have been thinking of what, would, what did God establish from the beginning? Well, here's Genesis chapter 1. Got it on the screen here for you. Genesis 1, 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant, yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which is fruit, yielding seed, and it shall be food for you, to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky. To everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. That's mankind's destiny. That's the way God had originally made it. But of course, as you know, that's only Genesis 1. And so by Genesis 3, something drastic has, has happened, and and even in Hebrews chapter 2, we see this. So here's the question. How then was mankind's destiny lost? What happened from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3? Well, look at verse 8, the second part of verse 8. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. So mankind's intended destiny was restricted going back to Genesis 3. What, what restricted that? It was Adam and Eve's sin. And so when Adam sinned, the earth was immediately corrupted. You can read the curses for yourself in Genesis 3. He immediately lost his kingdom. He was kicked out of the garden. He lost his crown, his in a sense, his dominion. And because all mankind fell in Adam, we do not see the earth subject to mankind. We do not rule this world. In fact, you might feel like the world is ruling you at times. Despite all our modern technology, 
what do we do? We're constantly fighting against the curse of sin, aren't we? We're fighting for our very survival at times on this earth. I'm going to put a picture on the screen here for you, and some of you, this is your worst nightmare, maybe. Um, that looks so beautiful, doesn't it? Any of you have nightmares about this beautiful yellow flowering plant we call gorse? Isn't that great that it came what from Scotland or wherever, introduced to New Zealand? Lovely plant, isn't it? Nice. No, that's a nightmare, isn't it? I put that up there because I know some of you, you fight against that thing. It's a constant fight on our farms and our land. It's fighting against us. You have to fight it. You have to spray it. You have to mow it. You, you're trying to kill that thing, get rid of it, but it keeps coming back. That's just one little example of how we're fighting for our very survival. And if you don't keep fighting it, it takes over, doesn't it? <laughs> right? There's so many examples I could use. That was the one that I knew just be your worst nightmare. Oh, you're seeing gorse in your nightmares when you're sleeping, right? So, that's what Hebrews in the Bible is reminding us. That's part of the curse of sin. Well, what else happened to Adam after he sinned? The Bible says he even lost mastery of himself. So not just the earth. He lost mastery of his own self. He was totally sinful, and as a result became a slave to his sin. And the Bible says that as a result of that, death came through sin. We can't stop death. We're subject to death. So how can mankind's destiny be recovered? We lost it in our sin. How can it be recovered? That's verse 9. Don't you love, I love verse 9 starting with that contrasting word. Because it says, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. So what's the answer? Well, the ultimate curse of mankind's lost destiny is death. Wages of sin is death. So when warning Adam about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said this. He, he said, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But the good news is, well, Christ bore our death. The cross conquered the curse. The kingdom is going to be restored. Man's going to be given the crown again. But how can it happen? Because God doesn't overlook sin. See? How can that happen? Well, if we're all sinners, which we are, how can we then become sinless? That, that's the age-old question. And, and the only payment for sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. So the only way then man can ever be a king again and, and reach that intended destiny is that curse has to be removed. The only way that curse can be removed then is the penalty has to be paid. That's what Romans is reminding us about. There's a penalty, and it's death. And if man is to be restored to his intended destiny, he has to die and be resurrected as a new man. Romans 
tells you about that in chapter 6. But I love the way the Apostle Paul, as he writes under the inspiration, he, he's, he answers that in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, my friend, if you're a believer, when Christ died on the cross, you died with Him. When Christ rose again, you arise with Him. And so the moment that I put my faith in Jesus Christ, at that moment, I was identified with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. I died with Christ on the cross. The curse was removed in Christ. And then I, I, I become a king. Oh, I haven't inherited my dominion yet, but the crown has been restored. And by the way, for every one of you who knows and loves Jesus Christ as well, guess what? It's the same for you. The moment you received Christ, you were identified with Him. You were That's what it means, in Christ. So you're crucified with Him. You're buried with Christ, and you're raised with Him to a new life. By the way, that's what your baptism is supposed to represent. By the way, those who've been baptized... It's showing the reality of your salvation, buried with Him in the likeness of His death, raised to walk in newness of life. So to accomplish that great work on our behalf then, Jesus had to become a man. That's what Hebrews 2 is telling us. See, you can't kill God, can you? So Jesus had to take on the form of man. He takes on now two natures. He's still divine, but he's also human. He had to become a man. He had to be, as it says here, he had to be made for a little while lower than the angels. So to regain man's dominion, it says he had to taste death for man. And if a man dies for his own sin, sorry, you're still doomed to hell. <laughs> you know why? If you try to die for your own sin, you try to pay the penalty for your own sin, what's the problem? You're not perfect. It requires a perfect sacrifice. So you're doomed to hell if you try to die for your own sin. But Christ, on the other hand, came to die for us and because in His dying, He then was able to conquer death. Christ tasted death. So our lost destiny then could be recovered. Well, you say, well, man, that's awesome. And it is. You know, I'd like to know more about this, this person that the Bible calls Jesus. Well, that next section here is going to tell us more about Jesus. But I have a question for you to consider as we come to the next section. How can we know that Jesus Christ is the perfect and only Savior? How do we know? Should we believe? What actually qualifies Jesus to do this anyway? Well, good question. The answer is given for us in verses 9 to 18. So let's see who is the Savior of mankind, according to Hebrews 2, 9 to 18. Well, we see in verse 9, first of all, that Jesus was born to die. He was born to die. Because it says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Christ was made, notice it says, for a little while, lower than the angels, so he could become a man, so that he could die. He became a man so that he could die. And so he came to die. That was his purpose, well, one of his purposes. And so through his death, he could accomplish what you and I could never accomplish. And so think about that. Those tiny hands in the manger in Bethlehem were fashioned by the Holy Spirit inside Mary's womb for the purpose of taking nails on the cross. Think about the little feet of Jesus. Again, fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb so those feet could climb the hill to Calvary and again, be nailed to a cross. His head was made to wear a crown of thorns. That body of Jesus, yeah, it was wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger, the Bible says, but it was made to take a spear through the side. So for this purpose, we see that Christ came to earth. His death was not an accident. It was purposeful. And so despite, yeah, it was evil. The Bible says it was evil. And and those people who did that to Jesus are going to be held accountable for that. But it was purposeful. He was crucified. And it was not a tragedy. It was God's ultimate plan for His Son. It was His ultimate gift as well to mankind. So we see that Jesus was born to die. Another thing for you to consider is that Jesus here is our substitute. He was our substitute. Again, verse 9 brings this truth out. He took our place. He died to, what? As it says in verse 9, to taste death for everyone. You and me. He died in our place. He became our substitute. So this is the first reason here it mentions for the incarnation. Uh, Incarnation just means Christ taking on flesh. He who is above the angels became for a little while lower than the angels so that he might suffer death on your behalf. Now that's not a popular truth today. The substitutionary of atonement of Christ is under attack by people who claim to be Christians. Now, they're liberals, but it's sad. They, they think that God is somehow a child abuser. That's what they claim God to be. They don't understand this truth. Without Him being your substitutionary atonement, you have no hope. That's who He is here. Three, we, we also see that Jesus is the founder of salvation. The founder of salvation, as verse 10 reminds us, that He should make the founder of their salvation perfect through, notice, it's through suffering. So for most people, life becomes quite anxious at the point of death. And and by the way, that is the point beyond which we can't go a single step by ourselves. But the author of our salvation here promises that, well, here's what Jesus said in John 14, because I live, you shall live also. Now the world's ultimate question, well, one of the ultimate questions is, has anyone ever cheated death? 
<laughs> oh, man, they make movies and, and, and fictional books out of that, don't they? Cheating death. Oh, we love people love to do that. Well, the Bible says, yeah, Jesus, Jesus cheated death in, in a way. The second most important question is, well, if he did, then did he make a way then for me to cheat death? And the Bible says, yes, he left the way open for you to escape death. And all we have to do then is we put our hand in Jesus' hand. He leads us from, from one side of death to the other, just as he did himself. And then you can say like the Apostle Paul, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so, it's interesting, uh, the words mentioned here in our text in verse 10, Jesus becomes the pioneer. He becomes the great pioneer of our redemption, the, the trailblazer, some, even some Bibles have used. And so what is he doing? He's blazing this trail ahead of us through death into resurrection. That's what it means for him to be the founder of your salvation. But he's also our sanctifier. Verses 11 through 13 show Jesus is our sanctifier. So, he became our sanctifier. He is the one who, that just means he makes us holy. <laughs> we need to be holy. Uh, that's the, we have no hope of getting to heaven without that. So from our own experience, this is, Difficult to think of ourselves as holy because we know we're still sinners. Sin is still with us, even as believers. In fact, uh, in, 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 we're still sinners in our thoughts, in our practice. Often I feel like I'm far from being holy. But the, I need to come back to the Bible because the Bible says, in the new nature, we are perfectly holy. Why? Not because of me but because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. So before God, those who are in His Son are made holy. We, we may not act holy. <laughs> in fact, we often don't. But positionally, you are holy. And so just as a child who often doesn't act like his father or please his father, for that fact, Guess what? That child is still his father's child, even though the child may not act like his father, right? Positionally, you're still the child's father. Well, it's, a, it's the same with us and God. We often don't act like our father, but we're still our father's child. Does that make sense? So we're holy in the sense that before God, the righteousness of Christ is applied to you. It's imputed to you on your behalf. Well, here's what other verses in Hebrews say. Chapter 10, verse 10. I'll put it on the screen here for you. It says that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Wow. You grasp that. You have been sanctified? Yeah, I, I am set apart, made holy? Yeah, that's what it's saying through the death of Christ, because of His offering on your behalf. Now, you might struggle, you might argue with God over that, but the truth doesn't change. You are made holy through Christ's sacrifice and have become those who are sanctified. 
If you don't believe that, you can take it up with God. That's what God says. And, and also, we also learn in, in verse 14 that Christ has removed the possibility of positional sinfulness. You don't believe me? Look at verse 14. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Positionally, that's you are made holy. So we're as pure positionally then as Christ is. As righteous positionally as Christ is righteous. And we're entitled then, as the text here reminds us, you're called a brother of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Not because of you, but because you now share His righteousness. Wow. That's great, but it gets even... It, it keeps going. What else do we see about our Savior? Well, verses 14 and 15 show us that Jesus is our devil destroyer. One of your enemies is destroyed. I love this. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So Satan's power over us had to be broken in order for us to be brought to God. What is Satan's primary weapon? Death. Death. Satan's primary power over man, his supreme weapon against man is death. Christ literally took his weapon right out of his hands. And so sin gives Satan his power over us, but that power itself is, is now removed. Why, so why did Jesus die, according to the text? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, the devil. And so the only way then to destroy Satan is to rob him of his weapon, being death. And by the way, that death there includes not just physical death. The Bible often speaks of death in a spiritual sense as well as an eternal sense. So there's actually three aspects of death. And so Satan knew that God required death for us because of sin. He knew what God said. And so when, when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and said, did, did God really say? He, he knew. He knew. He's questioning God, trying to get them to doubt God's word. He knew God had said, you eat of that tree there, you shall surely die. He knew the result of sin is death. He knew God required death because of sin. And so death had then to become the most certain fact of life. Satan knew that men, if they remained in that state, if you will, they would die, they would go out of God's presence into a place called hell, and it would be forever. So what does Satan do? Satan wants to hold on to people until, until death. And... and because once they're dead, then guess what? The opportunity for salvation is gone forever. You can't escape after death. And so God had to take from Satan this power of death. And just for that purpose, Jesus came, it says, to remove this weapon from 
Satan's hands. If you look at verse 15, this is interesting. Beautiful verse there in verse 15. Because it says, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Beautiful. See, the thing that terrifies a lot of people, maybe even more than anything else, is death itself. And that's why a lot of people don't want to think about it, right? It's a horrible fear. But when we receive Jesus Christ, death no longer holds us under the grip of fear, under that bondage. We've now been released from the bondage of the fear of death. And then you could be like some of the portions of Scripture. One of, one of the ones that's precious to me in particular is when Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's an interesting perspective. So death is no longer holding you under its bondage, but you can then rejoice and see death as a gain. Beautiful. Well, last of all in this text, we see that Jesus is our helper. Who is the Savior of mankind? Well, He is our helper. Oh, different Bibles say different things. The authorized version says He is our, our succor. Uh, I think it's the new KJV says he is our aid. Uh, some might even call him a sympathizer. But it's beautiful. Here in the ESV it says he is our helper. Our helper. He didn't do this for the angels. <laughs> Christ didn't come to redeem angels, but men. And so what did he do? He took on himself the form here. Notice what it says in verse 16. He takes on the form of Abraham's descendants. In other words, Jesus became a Hebrew. Not, not like you often see in religious art. Jesus was not some white Caucasian guy with blue eyes. No. He was a Hebrew. Kind of olive colored skin, dark hair, maybe even probably curly, you know, kind of hair. He takes on that kind of a form. And the writer answers this question again, by the way, that, okay, if Jesus is God, which he is, why did he become a man? Why did he become a man? Well, the reason given here in verses 16 to 18 is so that he could help us when we're tempted. This is one of his beautiful ongoing ministries as a high priest. He wanted to feel everything that we feel so that he could then, as it says, become a merciful and faithful high priest. He actually understands us in our humanity. He came not to save us, well, not only to save us, sorry. Hebrews tells us he came also so he could sympathize with you. He can sympathize with you. And so when you have a problem, we often do, it's wonderful then, isn't it, to be able to talk to the God of the universe, your Creator, who understands you. You could talk to the Divine One who's already experienced what you're going through, and then He has, and not only has He experienced it, but He's actually come through it successfully. Satan threw everything at Him in Matthew chapter 4. So He experienced the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, you know, all these, these various types of sin. Jesus experienced all those things, and He came through it successfully. Lived the perfect life you should have lived. So other people 
may be understanding of you, but they can't fully understand. Not fully. But the Bible says Jesus came to identify with us and to experience what we experience. That's what Hebrews 4 verse 15 is telling us when it says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So he can sympathize. Therefore, he can help you. He can aid you. But the good news is he was successful in that temptation. He didn't fall to the temptation. He conquered it. So praise God. He's our helper. He became our sympathizer. And so by God's grace, may we come to then believe, as Hebrews is trying to show us over and over again, that Christ is superior. He is supreme. He's the best in every way. And then, if we believe that, when we do, may we by faith and then act upon that glorious truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for showing us who Jesus is, who our Savior is. Thank You for revealing here for us our intended destiny, what what went wrong, what's the solution, how that can be recovered. And so we look forward to a glorious future. Thank you that we have a future. It's so precious to think about this. May we grow in in our knowledge and in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things from your word that we would not just know Christ, but this would be an experiential knowledge. May we not just see Christ as our Savior, but as as the text shows us here, that He is He's not ashamed to call us brother. Praise God. Thank You for the, the position of holiness that we have been brought into. May we know this truth. May that truth set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.